so coming up, uh, this was from uh, a couple of months ago. Judge Roy Moore, who's likely to become a U.S. senator soon. The rootinest, tootinest candidate in Alabama. Sodomy's on the march no more. Huh? Now Good. that he's going to be a U.S. senator. Uh, this radio interview that he Slap did. Slap sodomy on the ass. That's what I say. Came out yesterday where it, he got interviewed about DACA, the whole Dreamers thing, and it appeared that he had no idea what was going on with that, like had never heard of it. Oh. And um, uh, we'll play that for you. And you got to also wonder, how did that not come out three days ago? Because that could have swayed the election. Who knows? Uh, yeah, I, don't know. I suppose. I don't know. I haven't heard it. Well, he's, we'll, he's an old fella. It could be, you know. We'll play it for if you. If you said, What's, uh, what do you think about DACA? And, and the context wasn't in my head. I might not get it. And I know a okay, lot we'll about We'll play it. it for you. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Jack. What is a liberal Aleppo? Jack trying to bash the rudeness, tootinest senator in America? <laughs> Stay with us. I love, I love. They come out quarterly. The poll's on the state of the American dream. Do you think the American dream is still attainable? No, I don't. I really don't. I think it's dead. And you did poll after poll, result after result. Nobody ever bothers to ask, what is the American dream, in your opinion? And for some people, it's that my children will make more money than me. I have the complete list of what okay. it is. Yeah. But, yeah, you have one guy say, well, if you do ask him, is it getting rich? <laughs> then somebody <laughs> says, you know, owning a house, whatever. There are all sorts of different answers to it. But it's just, you know... In a poll like this, everybody just gives the answer that will make them come off the way they want to come off. If they see themselves as really skeptical and cynical, they'll give a, no way, man, it's dead. And if they want to come off as a proud American, they'll say, yeah, but nobody ever asks for a definition. So very quickly, here's a report on the health of the American dream. Well, how, what, what do you think it is if somebody asks you that? Of course it's alive. It's alive and well. Well, what is the American dream to you? Though? Oh, you know, I'm not going to give it away. Okay. I, it's a it's perfectly, a and I thank you for asking, but Joe, we'll get to that in a Joe second. Joe keeps the American dream a secret for Just some reason. Stop it with your insufferable interruptions. Fewer than one in five Americans are fully living the American dream, according to them. 18% say I'm fully living the American dream. Wow, that's a low number. Which sounds a little like a musical number from a uh, Matt Stone, Trey Parker musical. <laughs> I'm fully living the American dream. <laughs> but, you know, and then it gets really funny. Uh, the funny part comes next. 36% say they're living parts of it. 28% say it's within reach. 18% say it's completely unattainable. The top three U.S. states living the full American dream are Wyoming, Delaware, and Colorado. <laughs> what percentage of people are living, think they are living? Because yes, I think I fully am. living the yeah. American dream. Yes. Okay. 75% of people think the American dream is in danger. When asked why, Americans' top reasons were government policies, 18%. That's the number one answer hmm. for why the American dream is threatened, government policy. Granted, it's, it's slightly less than 20%. Uh, income inequality, 13%. That's an odd answer. Well, that you is just, a weird answer. You just answer. heard that for Rachel Mad Freaking Dow. Do, Dow, do, do, do. Uh, household debt. 11%. Well, what the hooks? Who's to blame for that? White people. Call up everybody in Columbus, Ohio. Well, if you have household debt, then you have household debt. Don't have household debt. Credit card debt and the prohibitive costs of purchasing a home. 7% said that. All mm. right. Now, what 
is the most important element of the American dream? They asked people. Finally. Flag ownership. We're going to get an idea of the, the, what makes up the American dream. And, I, I, you know, I would guess your top two answers would be a reasonable description of the American dream. Your top two or three answers. Now, I will go ahead and tell you, the view I've always had of the American dream is if you work smart and you run your life well, you can achieve a level of success. You will not be held back, like suffocated, by your your class or where you're from or how much money you had when you're born. It, it does help to have money, to make money, but there are so many success stories of people who come from the lower classes, they achieve success, et cetera, et cetera. You can do that in America in a way that you can't do it in, in a lot of other countries. Um, that's always been my view of the American dream. It's it's just, it's 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 fairly vague, but, you know, it's it's motivated me throughout my life and I've believed it. Counting down from number 10 to number one, This is what people said are the most important elements of the American dream. Number 10, 2% said owning a pet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, ever since I was a little boy, (laughs) I've dreamed of owning a cat. (laughs) And in this great country, I believe someday I could own a cat. Yeah, uh, inside the numbers on this study, 100% of those 2% are cat owners. <laughs> yeah, yes. I'll bet you're right. Yes, and half God of them own 50 it. or more cats. Oh, my God. Number nine, only 3% said social mobility, meaning I can earn more than my parents. Hmm. Seems like a pretty important part of it. Yeah, I always thought that was it, it, a well, regularly... Well, it depends on your parents. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I always thought that was a common one. Okay, only 3%. Yeah, although, you know, there are other answers that are similar enough. Again, you got to kind of use it to paint a picture. Uh, Number eight, owning a car. 5% say that's one of the fundamental elements of the American dream, owning a car. God, they own cars in a lot of, like, crappy countries you wouldn't want to live in. Right, right. Number seven, being able to afford luxuries is the uh, fundamental to the American dream. Yeah, okay. Luxuries. Yeah, I don't. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about owning luxuries. No, because I don't no. think they're going to make me happy. But uh, number six, building retirement savings is part of the American dream. Being able to put a little money away. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that to me is is pretty pretty valid. Number five, being able to send my child to college. You know, that's less and less in a part of the American dream because universities are now jo- giant bloated greed factories where huge pensions pad the pockets of government employees, where there are now 50 assistant deans of diversity and assimilation, each making six figures so your child can run up six figures of debt. I bring to you the, the uh, bring to your attention once again the headline from the LA Times pointing out that there are some 5,400 University of California retirees receiving pensions of over $100,000, um, someone without a pension would need savings between two and three million dollars to guarantee a similar income in wow. retirement. Wow! The that billions. is amazing. Oh, that is amazing. You're and and you get to call yourself a public servant. The University of California system has run up a fifteen billion dollar gap 
between the amount on hand and the amount it owes to current and future retirees. Well, you have the equivalent lifestyle of somebody who is able to sock away two or three million dollars, which means you were really successful. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Like and, among uh, the very, very few. You need to be counted as the top one-tenth of one percent, because that's what you are. So, with uh, apologies for the tangent, if you believe that sending your child to college is a fundamental part of the American dream, you are being effed by the government and the universities themselves. I hate to get so, si- I hate to get so sidetracked here, but most of those people who are making the equivalent of someone who is able to save $3 million are quasi-socialists. Right. That's correct. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And that's why they think socialism works. because, And this is how socialism always works. Every single time, those who control the strings of power and the strings of control take an extra huge slice of pie for them. It's happened every single time. Very few of those people would be full-throated capitalists, and they're making more money than almost every capitalist in America. Right. Yeah. We, I think we ought to take a break and finish strong. You want to take, finish strong? Uh, we have strong? a guest coming up. Oh, we do? Yeah. Oh, man, that's too right. and, and they can wait. They're, it's a nice uh, fella, and I'm sure he doesn't mind a three, four-minute wait. Um, let's see. Number four, finding a fulfilling career is a fundamental part of the American dream. Um, being able to start a family, starting a family. Well, knock some girl up, and you'll start a family. Now, raise that kid. If you ever produce a child, raise it. Period. No exceptions. God, you can start a family practically everywhere. Again, I don't see that as the, the American dream. What that? What's exceptional about America with that? I don't. And, and listen, the whole we're going to wait till we can afford it to have a child, raise a child, get married, etc. Just you, you'll find a way. If it's important to you, you'll find a way. Number two, affording rent and living expenses without hardship is the American dream. And the number one item is owning a home. I home I love. Interestingly, that was cited by only about one in five as the number one element of the American dream. So your top five, owning a home, being able to afford it without hardship, uh, having a family, having a fulfilling career, and being able to send my kid to college. That's your top five elements of the American dream. I I don't think that's bad. I don't think owning a pet is nearly as important as some people think, but, you know, if you like hamsters, get a hamster. Uh, who are we talking to? I lost my sheet. Who We're going to talk to Tony Messia of the Washington Examiner. I'm sorry, the Weekly Standard. Senior writer about the tax reform effort and what's going to go into the hash before it gets uh, slung on the plate. Okay, now we'll try really hard to fit in that uh, radio interview with uh, Judge Moore talking about DACA. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. It's about growing our economy so that the jobs of the future are created and manifested here at home. If I could say it as simple as possible, I would say that this tax reform conversation is about hashtag keep yo money. (laughs) Hashtag keep yo money from Representative Tim Scott. He's a senator, Jack. Senator on the health care committee. Black guy. RSC. Why did I mention he's a black guy? Well, I suppose it's notable. There aren't a lot of black Republicans, so it's worth mentioning, right? That's not a racist thing to say. More every day. I don't no, like generally. Observation. I don't like pointing out race generally, but there are not a lot of black guys in the uh, Republican Party. Uh, no, there are not. Not enough. But um, anyway, 
Uh, welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show, and, and please welcome to the show Tony Messia, senior writer for the Weekly Standard. He's writing about the Trump tax reform plan. Tony, welcome. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, previously on the Armstrong and Getty Show, we just learned that 2% of people say the number one element of the American dream is owning a pet. <laughs> would would you agree that that 2% should be denied the vote? <laughs> Do we, do we get an exemption or a tax write-off for owning a pet? That would be <laughs> An excellent transition. So listen, Tony, uh, the, the, the outlines of the plan, we can certainly talk about that, but they will evolve. Uh, there is going to be a hell of a battle. What we wanted to talk to you about is, is the incredible battle royale with all the lobbyists weighing in and all the interest and all the politicking that's going to go on between now and, and the point that the hash is, is flung onto the plate. How would you describe it? Yeah, it's not going to be a pretty uh, process. I mean, it'll be a lot of you know, sausage making, and uh, you know, it, it can, it's not going to be very, very pretty. There are going to be all kinds of lobbyists descending wanting to get all sorts of different, wanting to maintain their breaks and their perks and their carve-outs and their exemptions. And, I mean, they're they're very engaged in this process. I mean, lobbying so far this year is already on track to break previous records. And, you know, Congress hasn't really done anything, right? I mean, maybe that's because of the lobbyists, a lot of them. Uh, sure. In. But, but the business community, you know, they're very engaged on this. And, uh, they're you know, when, when Washington has a lot of power, over uh, over your pocketbook, you, you know, that stimulates a lot of people, a lot of interest, a lot of lobbyists uh, to come out and be involved in that process. So they, they want to be a, a winner, you know, they want to get uh, they want to get some money. Sure. Um, so, I mean, it, it really encourages them to come out. Thought just occurred to me that this might be one of the greatest disconnects you ever have in major legislation between what we understand versus what is what is going on behind the scenes. Sure. Yeah. And well, go ahead. Was there more to that thought, Jack? Agree or disagree? Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on behind the scenes, and it's just a question of, I mean, sort of the age-old question, you know, when you send representatives to Washington, are are, are they doing the people's business? Are they making uh, judgments based on, you know, what's best for the country, what's best for their constituents, or do they sort of get into this, uh, you know, President Trump calls it the swamp, you know, do they get into this swamp mentality where they're meeting with lobbyists and they come to have a different understanding of, of what the priorities well, are, uh, different than what we said. Well, they, I guess my point was the argument, we've already heard it in the first 24 hours, you got one saying, this is just, I call it welfare, as Chuck Schumer said, it's tax cuts for the rich, and then you got the other side saying, you're going to keep more your money when it's so incredibly complicated and there's going to be tens and tens of thousands of pages of tax code looked at and jiggered around that sort of thing yeah yeah well the the status quo is 77 some thousand pages of taxes and those were written for a reason to grant favors to people and we just so you understand tony we are staunchly pro-business we are pro-economic growth if your business grows you will get a raise you will get multiple job offers it is good for everybody um we're just, you know, we we just hate to get it twisted out of, uh, you know, recognizable shape by the lobbyists. But can you give us an idea? What does the Trump proposal look like at the outset? Sure. I mean, like, as you suggest, it's, it's very complicated. The current tax code is very complicated. And, you know, there's a principle that, I mean, I agree with you, too, that, you know, we want businesses to be able to thrive. We want them to be able to invest, hire people. Uh, but when you get down to the nitty-gritty of how that works and which industries and how do you create a tax code that, that 
does that, it gets, it gets very complicated, and there are a lot of very big questions out there. One of the most exciting things, I think, about the proposal that's out there is that it, it really does give a lot of advantages to business to encourage some of that growth. And you've seen a huge um, drop, potentially, in the corporate tax rate, which is now the second highest in the world at 35%. They want to drop that down to 20%. Uh, they want to cut taxes on small businesses, make the top rate 25%. Uh, for these pass-through businesses, where currently it's uh, 39.6, because people pay that on their individual form, there are very you know exciting things going on in, in the deductibility of equipment. I know that sounds kind of boring, you know. It sounds like, oh, talking about depreciation. Can I say that word on the radio? <laughs> listeners going to sleep, you know. But but that's to, to businesses investing and and the tax treatment of. Uh, how you depreciate equipment is very important. That could do a lot of good. So there are a lot of things on the business side to be pretty excited about that I think are pretty substantial. But to make it politically saleable, to make it you know, politically acceptable, you know, they put all these other things in there too. Nothing wrong with lowering individual rates, you know. Uh, but you know, they're doing things like you know, increasing the child tax credits. Um, you know, potentially taking more people off of the roles of paying individual income taxes, so they can try to say, oh, this is a middle-class tax cut, middle-class tax relief, when it seems to me it's more like some substantial business tax relief combined with um, so a little bit of dressing up to make it look as though it benefits a lot of, lot of quote-unquote, real people. Interesting. Um, as always, the, uh, you know, the reality is not only more complicated, but uh, significantly different from the way either side's going to portray it. Tony Messia is a senior writer for the Weekly Standard. Trump said he's not going to budge on that 20% number for the corporate tax rate because he wanted 15. He said, I'm going to 20 because I didn't think I'd give 15. But he said, that number is not negotiable. It was funny. He came out and said, I wanted 15, thinking that it would go to 20. You know, he's yeah. of, that's his negotiating technique. He starts you know, starts low and then knows that there's some stuff to be negotiated. You know, another interesting part, uh, interesting point, especially for uh, listeners on, on the West Coast in California, is that one of the deductions they're talking about getting rid of is the deduction for state and local taxes. So if you happen to live in a high-tax state, uh, do you guys live in a high-tax state? Good I, I don't Lord. I really know the answer. Is, <laughs> California, do you get taxed a lot in California? I'm not wearing shoes today because I can't afford them. Well, yeah, I've, I've, that is amazing. So you can't you can't deduct your state tax, and that's a big deal if you're in a high tax state. But I, I was listening to the argument from the left, and the complaint was it it punishes blue states and it helps red states. It's punishing. Well, punishing. I don't know is the right word, but it affects people who have high tax rates. It's it's right. not as bad if you have a low tax rate. I like low tax rates. It's not about punishing you because you voted Hillary. Well, it just so happens that the people that live in states that that have high taxes happen right. to be populated, you know, by right. by you know by high income people that would be affected by that. So yeah, it's it's um, you know, yeah. I mean, it's sort of one of those things where philosophically, you know, you can say, well, yes, we shouldn't be subsidizing you know these high tax states and encouraging big government in states like California. But then I think there are going to be a lot of people that when they're looking at their current taxes and then looking at the proposal are saying, well, wait a minute, I might agree with this philosophically, but I'm, I'm going to lose that deduction and I'm going to wind up paying more. I mean, so those are some of the complexities that I think you're going to find. What did you just say? I wasn't paying attention. I was calling a moving van. <laughs> Tony Messia, Weekly Standard, uh, senior writer. Well, and again, uh, Tony, we're going to see a hell of a lot of changes in, in arguments and lobbying and the rest of it. Do you have any sense of when we might uh, see the legislation actually hit the floor? 
They're hoping to get it done by the end of the year. There are a few sort of procedural steps they're going to need to do in the next few weeks. They have to write a budget that sort of makes um, allowances for these tax changes, so that's going to be an important step. They'll start having hearings, I think, within a number of weeks. It's a fairly compressed timetable. The advantage to that is if you can move it through quickly, you deny some of these lobbyists uh, the chance to really take hold uh, and and muck around with it a little bit, uh, but it, you know it's a pretty aggressive timetable, and we know that you know the, these timetables tend to um, they tend not to adhere to them right uh, always. You know, like remember the Obamacare. Uh, you know, President Trump was saying that when I take office, I'm going to sign the Obamacare repeal, and they're still monkeying around with that. You know, it looks it's failed doing it several times, of course, but. Um, so these deadlines tend to get pushed back, but the hope is that it will happen by the end of what the year. Do you think we'll the, what do you think the likelihood is that they're able to actually pass and sign something that everybody would call a significant tax reform? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think I, they are really feeling a lot of pressure, I think, to actually show that they can do something and pass legislation, which... You know, a lot of times you think we, we, that's why we sent them there is to to make change, to pass laws, right? To pass bills, um, and, and so they're they're under a lot of pressure to do that. I think they're going to wind up with something. It might not be quite as aggressive um, or ambitious as the plan that was released yesterday, but I, I think you might see some of that watered down. But I think the odds of of getting something done that are beneficial for um, businesses as well as beneficial for individual taxpayers. I think I have a. I'm. I try to be optimistic about it. So I, I feel. I feel optimistic that they're going to get get something done because they know that they have to get something done. And if they don't, they're going to pay a huge electoral price next year. Tony Masia, senior writer for the Weekly Standard. Tony, enjoyed the chat. Thanks a million. Thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. A couple of stats I heard the other day. I know we're running late, but this is this is so important to hear. Um because of of some of the rhetoric you're going to uh, hear about uh, business. You're going to hear the description of business as, you know, giant fat cats and huge corporations and the rest of it. The numbers that will change your perception after this. Oh, wow. I decided it's late enough we probably got to break. What's coming up in your news, Marshall Phillips? Twitter, a tool of the Russians. We're going to get into that. Duh. You got former Mexican President Vincente Fox dropping F-bombs on President Trump. C. And the late Hugh Hefner's secret to happiness and a long, long life. Oh, yeah. Minutes from now, the Armstrong and Getty Show. Sex up young women with mental problems. That's his key to happiness. I'll listen to you. What are you, Judge Roy Moore over here? Get on your horse and ride. So we got uh, numbers that'll shock you about business and Roy Moore's radio interview. See what you think of that. All coming up after Marshall's News. So we got a good action-packed half hour coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Steve Scalise addressing uh, Congress this morning. Standing ovation for being alive, I guess. Uh... Amazing thing. Oh, yeah. What a He's story. had a rough, rough go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, news now with Marsha Phillips. Well, Twitter's on the hot seat on Capitol Hill today. The social media giant's going to be speaking with House and Senate investigators as part of an ongoing investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections. At issue is the spread of false news stories and propaganda on social media, to what extent Russia was involved, and whether anyone in the U.S. helped target those stories. As an example... The New York Times is reporting, quote, 
after a weekend when Americans took to social media to debate President Trump's admonishment of NFL players who do not stand for the national anthem, a network of Twitter accounts suspected of links to Russia seized on both sides of the issues with hashtags such as Boycott NFL, stand for our anthem, and take a knee. So they're running hashtag take a knee and hashtag stand for our anthem wisely. Just trying to sow division. The Russians are. And the new information is that Twitter may have been used even more extensively than Facebook during the election last year. Everybody's been focused on Facebook. Uh, Twitter might have been a bigger deal. So Congress needs to look into that. Wow. How many of the controversies that we all yeah. discussed, maybe talked about at great length on this very show, were being the, the the real venom out there was coming from the Russians. God, that's something. I don't know how we're con- going to combat that either. Former Mexican President Vincente Fox going after President Trump again. He's in Los Angeles this week, keynote speaker at a conference hosted by the L.A. World Affairs Council, and he wasted no time going after Trump and the idea of a massive border wall, saying Mexico will never pay for it. If United States taxpayers want to pay $35 billion to build that wall, it's your choice. What I can assure you is that Mexico will not, will never, will ever pay for that f-ing wall. Did wow. He, did wow, he, s- he dropped an iPhone <laughs> bomb again. He did it again? Yes. Wow. Yes. So is he running again, or can he run? What is he doing? No, I don't think he can run again. No, I don't think so either. I think he's just stirring huh? things up and, you know, uh, speaking out. He's uh, very well known and uh, very well liked amongst uh, many quarters in the United States. Maybe he's auditioning for the new most interesting man <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Playboy magazine says its founder, Hugh Hefner, died Wednesday, natural causes, age 91. Hefner publishing the first issue of Playboy in 1953. That was a time when states could legally ban contraceptives when the word pregnant was not allowed on I Love Lucy. By the 1970s, the magazine had more than 7 million readers. Hef promoting the Playboy lifestyle and the secret, he says, to a long and happy life. If I look back over the years, the happiest times for me were the times in the early stages of romantic love. It keeps you young. Oh, God. Anybody who's looking to him for, like, life-living philosophy, that I don't get. Um, We're way too coarse a society, and it's gone way too far, and I think it's damaging and corrosive and going to ruin the culture in America. But... The idea that you couldn't say pregnant on television in the 50s is just insane. Right. As I've often put it, democracies, societies, veer from one extreme to another, back and forth, hit the sweet spot only briefly, then quickly move away from it. There you go. That's a wrap. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the voice of the West. I mean, you you're, you're either not listening to rape victims because you can't stand to hear about genitals, or the family is crumbled completely and porn is everywhere. Yeah. There's no in between. Yeah. The, the idea, I mean, you talk to, we have talked to our tiny children about pregnancy and that, that sort of stuff. You couldn't say pregnant on television in the 50s for grown-ups. That's so insane. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, we got a couple of great things for you. Some uh, stats about jobs, employers, companies, businesses you that listen- will blow you away. And I want you to listen to this radio interview with Judge Roy Moore, who's probably going to be U.S. Senator now. Uh, see if this bothers you. Came out after the election for some reason. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show.
Would you support it into the Dreamer program that President Trump has still continued to to push? The pardon the Dreamer program? Yes, sir. The DACA, not, DAPA. You're not you're not aware of what Dreamers are? No. Dreamers. Uh, this is a big no. issue in the uh, immigration debate. Dreamers are. Why don't you tell me what it is, Dale? Quit big around. Tell me what it is. I'm kind of shocked that you don't know what this is. What do you think about that? Well, you know, if, if Trump's done it, well, that's what Trump's done. Do you support the ending of that program that you didn't know existed? Well, I would, I would support that program. I surely would. Let me know uh, what you think about that Dreamer program uh, when you learn uh, about that. So um, that was Judge Roy Moore on a radio show. The laughter was from this was being played on a, on a show. Yes, correct. Um, where they were laughing at that. I. You know, hearing it again for the second time, because you asked, maybe he was caught off guard with DACA. Mm-hmm. Couldn't remember, DACA didn't strike him out of context. No, it was set up with what it is, and he just right. seemed to be completely unaware of the issue. This was in July, while this issue was crazy hot, and he was involved in it. Because the national conversation was, D- this is going to help Roy Moore, because he's anti-immigration, he's going to be at blah, blah, blah. And he seems to be completely unaware of the national conversation as a guy who's about to become a U.S. senator of the whole DACA dreamer thing. I don't see your point. (laughs) (laughs) He was too busy cleaning his little gun. Uh, uh, That is surprising. What is Aleppo? I mean, it's... It's surprising. Now, I, I like a lot of his act. I'm a guy, I wear a cowboy hat. I have a horse. I have a gun. I like that whole thing. But the 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 populist I don't need to know anything about anything thing is just that that's not what I'm looking for. I I wish there was a place for someone who's making the argument intellectually about small government and personal freedom, you know, quoting the great philosophers to mm-hmm. try to sell that to people. Right. And that's not what is currently happening as a rebuff to establishment republicanism and, and, and the government status quo. You sound to me like a guy who's soft on sodomy. <laughs> <laughs> and the judge is finally going to put the sodomites in their place, which is clearly Sodom. Didn't it sound like he'd never even heard of Dreamers and DACA? Like he never I, I, follows anything it, in the news? It sounded a little like that. Wow. Yeah, that was surprising. Um. Yeah. I. I don't. I'm sure he can get up to speed on it. But uh, yeah. I. I don't know uh, what it's like to run for the Senate in Alabama. I. If I were running for the Senate, I shared my uh, fantasy of running for the Senate in Nevada. Um. Yesterday on the show, I think I would read up on some of the issues. I think I would be up. Uh, up to speed. How about the issue at the time? Yeah, it's kind of a big one. Yeah, you, you open a newspaper, turn on any cable news channel, you wouldn't have been able to avoid it. Kind of shocking. Were they talking to? Hmm, eh, this is probably unfair. Were they? I don't. I've already committed to it. No, bail, bail. bail. Okay. <laughs> so, I found this incredibly enlightening. According to the most recently available census figures, which are from 2014, which is hard to explain. What do you not have a calculator? Do you not have an Excel spreadsheet? Anyway. Talking about jobs and businesses, we're uh, the context of the tax cuts for businesses, etc. S corps, pass through corporations, which are like the small, small businesses, um, where uh, because they're they're small enough and simple enough, the uh, the people who run them don't have the whole structure of accounting departments and 
and and etc. And their uh, the revenue of the business they declare as personal income. Anyway, there are uh, hundreds of millions of people who work in the United States. Hundreds of millions. Businesses with under 20 workers, under 20, account for 89% of businesses. I'm surprised every time I hear those statistics. Yeah. 89% of businesses in the United States of America have fewer than 20 workers. And whenever you hear arguments like you've heard the last 24 hours about how this is a gift to big business. And the fat cats. Everybody's picturing General Motors and General Electric. And, and these various giant companies. General Mills. I'm General Mills, yes, me too. Yeah. When 89% <laughs> of businesses is the auto shop with three guys who bang out your dents, the smaller ones, or the, the ice cream place that employs five teenagers, um, or, or what have you, 89% have under 20 workers. Those with under 500 workers, 99.7% of businesses in the United States of America. That's something. Yeah. There are five, there are more actually than 5.8 million uh, businesses in America that employ people. 5.83 million employer firms. And again, 99.7% of them have under 500 workers. So the big giant corporations that you hear about, they're absolutely making a lot of money and they care about the tax code and they'll send their lobbyists and the rest of it. But the I mean, 99.7% of the businesses that they're talking about are not those businesses. And they employ virtually all Americans. Right. And uh, I was talking to a plumber the other day, a guy, and I've known him for a while, and he, uh, he's he got a van. I think his wife answers the phones, and he had two other employees. He got rid of one because he was not doing what he ought to do. And uh, he said, you know, since I got rid of that bad employee, I, I'm, I'm, I've been uh, coming out ahead. Since then, before then, I was uh, losing money or breaking even. I thought, wow, you're busting your ass the way I know you bust your ass. Yeah. And just breaking even every month. Yeah. Let alone making money. And if he and if he gets some sort of tax cut where he's going to be able to make more money, he's going to hire another person or two. That's mm-hmm. what's going to happen. It's guaranteed. Right. Yeah. So that yeah. he can grow. Um, so that's the benefit. So when you hear all this is is a gift to, to companies, well, that ends up being a gift to employees or workers or more jobs or whatever the term trickle down was invented in the 80s to disparage the idea of freeing up more money to invest and grow business it's a gift to the rich and they say it'll trickle down to employees how do you think business works do you think the employees all get together and buy a mcdonald's and then find a guy to own it or no, they first of all, they, they all get together as uh, hourly employees of a business that doesn't exist yet. They all buy it. Then they find an assistant manager who then finds a manager who then finds an owner to own it. No, that's not the way it works. And the more business, the more entrepreneurs, you, you know, the more, uh, you know, go-getters, the more people who've risked absolutely every dime they've ever earned um, and, and their mortgage generally and their credit cards to start a business, the more you understand that's where jobs come from, people making that risk. And what we're trying to do as an economy is free is 
to take some of the money the government is taking and squandering and putting it back in the hands of the employer to invest in their business or do whatever they want with it. Maybe they want to buy a boat. Guess what? The company that has 50 people building boats is really, really happy about that. Chuck Schumer's mad because Chuck Schumer doesn't get it anymore. He doesn't get the money. Sorry, I was busy polishing my gun. I didn't pay attention to that whole conversation. I kind of saw the look in your eyes. A little glazed (laughs) over. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.